Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orch, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. A few weeks ago, I was asked to make a presentation on courage in ministry leadership. And that caused me to rethink some things I've written about this in the past. I I've written a chapter on this subject in my book, The Painful Side of Leadership, and I've taught and spoken on this from time to time. But for this presentation, I went back through the material and uh, did a refresh on it, if you will, and also thought about some new ideas that I've added over the years that I think would augment it uh, and make the material even stronger. So today and next week on the podcast, I'd like to do a two-part series for you on courage in ministry leadership. Now let's start with the definition of courageous leadership. My definition is this. Choosing to obey God, no matter the opposition, the perceived challenges, or the anticipated outcomes. Now let's go over that again. Definition of courageous leadership. Choosing to obey God. No matter the opposition, the perceived challenges, or the anticipated outcomes. Now my definition breaks down into these four components. The first one is choosing to obey God. Courage is a choice. It's a decision you make to obey God rather than obeying man, obeying your fears, obeying your reasoning, or any other force that tries to control you. Choosing to obey God. And then notice the next phrase, no matter the opposition. Now, this recognizes that courage always takes place in the face of opposition. It's not courageous to go along with what everyone else wants you to do or to ride along on the wave of a cresting crowd of momentum of popularity. No, courage is choosing to obey God no matter the opposition. But then note these next two phrases, the perceived challenges. The perceived challenges, meaning the challenges as you experience them. Now, that may mean that the challenges are more significant for you than those same challenges might be for another person. That's why courage is such a personal choice. Because you make the decision to obey God no matter the opposition or the perceived challenges. In other words, the challenges as you perceive them. Not as your pastor perceives them or as your spouse perceives them or as your mother or father perceives them, but as you perceive them. And all of us know that some things are more difficult than others. Some things are more fearful for some people than they are for other people. Perception matters in terms of making courageous decisions. And then finally, are the anticipated outcomes. Now, the word anticipated means the the outcomes that might happen or even the outcomes that might likely happen. But this recognizes the fearful uncertainty that often exists in the context of when a courageous decision has to be made. So, the definition. Choosing to obey God, no matter the opposition, the perceived challenges, or the anticipated outcomes. 
Now, I draw this definition from a story in the book of Daniel. It's a pretty well-known story for many of you who know your Bibles. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being instructed by King Nebuchadnezzar to fall down and worship a golden statue he had erected and to which he was demanding allegiance. Of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. And it says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, that these three men replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Now, these men are a model for Christian leadership according to the definition that I've just given in several ways. First, they faced a powerful authority, an enraged king who had both the will and the capacity to take their lives. They also faced daunting options, idolatry or death. Those were the choices they were given. Those are daunting options. Third, they understood their choice and its consequences. Now, this is one of the most remarkable aspects of this story and what makes this story one of the most amazing statements of courage, courage and courageous leadership in the Bible. These men said, we will not bow down. And God might deliver us. But then they also said, or he might not. But either way, Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down. These men chose to obey God, no matter the opposition, an enraged king, the perceived challenges, a fiery furnace, or the anticipated outcomes, which could be that God would deliver them, or could be that God would not deliver them. But nevertheless, they chose to obey God and leave the outcome to him. So I hope you see how my definition, choosing to obey God no matter the opposition, the perceived challenges, or the anticipated outcomes, emerges out of this story of these three young men resisting Nebuchadnezzar to the point even of possibly dying but being unwilling to bow down and worship a gold statue, committing idolatry in the face of their devotion to God. So, they are a model for courageous leadership and the source of this definition that I've described to you today. But now let's move to another question, and that is, is there really a need for courageous leadership today? I mean, really? Can't we just all find a way to get along? Can't we just find a compromise or find some middle ground or find what some people call the third way? Can't we just get past all this conflict and all this drama and all this melodrama and 
Can't we just find peace and tranquility and satisfaction? Oh, man, I wish we could. I wish that there was no need for courageous leadership. I wish that all ministry contexts were idyllic, even Edenic. I just wish that it was like so many people want it to be. But that is not the reality of the world we're living in. Today, ministry leaders must be prepared to make courageous leadership decisions. And in the context of providing effective leadership, must be willing to obey God, no matter the opposition, the perceived challenges, or the anticipated outcomes. Let me give you seven examples of what I mean. First, there is the need for courage to make decisions. This is the essence of what leaders do. We make decisions. A number of years ago, my youngest son uh, had only known me as a pastor and saw me, his father, go off to become the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention. And one day he asked his mother, what does daddy do? And uh, my wife answered, well, he's the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention. And my little son said, I know that, but what does he do? And my wife, in a moment of brilliance, said, well, your daddy listens to people's ideas, but then he makes the decisions. What a great definition of executive leadership. This morning, for example, I attended a meeting where we discussed as an executive team a number of issues that we're dealing with here at the seminary. And don't be alarmed, we do this almost every week where we talk about the issues we're facing and the decisions we have to make and the difficulties that those decisions will create. And frankly, most of these kinds of decisions are about budget and about personnel and often how those two things merge together. And even in this morning's meeting, we discussed a decision that has a negative ramification for a particular employee, and we talked about how painful that was, but how necessary it was for the good of the organization. And so it's the courage to make decisions about budget, about personnel, about policy, about program, about practice. The courage to decide. You know, some people don't want to be leaders because they just don't want the pressure of being the one who has to make the call. But leaders know that they must obey God, no matter the opposition, the perceived challenges, the anticipated outcomes, and make the decisions daily about leading an organization forward. Here's another one. The courage to hold doctrinal positions. Yes, I'm a person that wants to find as much doctrinal peace and as much doctrinal solidarity and as uh, have as broad of a doctrinal uh, definition as possible to bring as many believers as I can into, into fellowship around what we believe. I, I want that. I really do. But the hard reality is there are some doctrines that we either believe or, or we don't. And when we make those decisions, we 
find ourselves ostracized or excluded, somehow divided or somehow creating dissension or division, sometimes among believers, but more often between believers and people who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. One of those examples is the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It is very hard for me to understand how anyone can hear that statement and not understand the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus himself claimed to be the only way of salvation. And you may say, I have a thousand objections to that. I have reasoned explanations for why I'm opposed to that statement. I feel that we need to soften or justify or somehow make it easier to relate to Christians and to relate to Jesus without using that harsh statement. Well, I don't know how you get around the simple, plain words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, holding to the exclusivity of the gospel requires courage in today's world. If you hold to the exclusivity of the gospel, you'll be called a religious bigot, a legalist, a fundamentalist, might even be called a terrorist. You will be accused of all kinds of intellectual and emotional turmoil and blackmail and infliction of pain and suffering and heartache and hardship. All kinds of things will come against you. All kinds of opinion, all kinds of ideas, all kinds of people, if you hold to that simple doctrinal position. And yet, it's not that we're trying to be divisive or look for conflict or create difficulty. It's that Jesus said it so plainly that we don't have any other way to go except with him and his plain words. The courage to hold doctrinal positions. Here's another one. It requires real courage today to confront sin and to confront sinful living. Now, it's easy on some things to take a stand. For example, against sexual abuse. That's an easy stand to take. Sexual abuse is wrong, and almost everyone, almost everyone in the culture agrees that it's wrong and takes a stand against it and wants it stopped and wants people who've harmed others, especially children, to be prosecuted and held accountable for their actions. And we want to protect the vulnerable so that it doesn't happen again to them. Well, it takes courage to speak out against some sin, yes. But frankly, some issues like this, it's, it's, it's not that difficult because we essentially all stand together, including in the culture. But let me give you some others that are a little more difficult. It's really hard to confront the sin of greed in the church today. Oh, no, wait a minute now. We want everyone to feel prosperous and to enjoy the blessings of God and to celebrate the riches that we have. Well, I'm all for enjoying and celebrating. I, I, I appreciate how God has prospered me, and I want to stay humbly grateful for that. But the hard reality is the American church is greedy. Statistics uh, indicate that around 2% of our income is all we give away every month in the entire Christian movement in the United States. 2%. That's not even close to a tithe. 
You say, well, the tithe, that's Old Testament. Yeah, it's interesting to me how people only justify the Old Testament argument when they want it to be less than the Old Testament required, when in every way Jesus said, I came to exceed the Old Covenant, not minimize it. So I have no problem if you say, well, the tithe is so Old Testament. As long as you mean by that, let's surpass it. That's, what's, that's what grace is all about. But that message in the American church often falls on deaf ears because we're greedy. We, we don't want to give. We want to get. We don't want to bless others. We want to hold on for ourselves. And so it takes courage to stand up and say, this is what God says about money. This is about God says about how you earn money, how you save money, how you spend money, how you invest money, and how you give money away. The Bible speaks to all of these issues. And it takes real courage to stand up and address them. I'm sometimes uh, saddened by pastors who say, well, it's really not my place to speak on money. You know, that's, that's a private matter. Those same pastors will preach about moral purity and say, that's not a private matter. They will preach on use of Internet. That's not a private matter. They'll talk about the kind of movies you watch or the shows you attend or the places you go for entertainment. That's not a private matter. But, oh, when it comes to money, we justify not saying anything because it's, quote, a private matter. No, we, we justify not saying anything because we're cowards. And we won't call people to account on their money. So it takes courage to confront sin, to stand up and say, this is what the Bible says. And don't just cherry pick the easy ones, like in a large part of the evangelical movement, oh, homosexuality is wrong, adultery is wrong. Yeah, they are wrong, and it's good to call those things out. But what about things like divorce? That's wrong, too. What about greed? That's wrong, too. Calling out sin requires courage. Here's another one. Uh, It takes courage to change a paradigm. Now, a paradigm is just simply a, a way of doing something that's become enculturated. It's the way we all do it. It's the way everyone knows things get done. It's, it's, it's the way we operate. It's a paradigm. It's an ingrained habit that becomes a part of our culture and a part of who we are. Organizations can have paradigms. Uh, communities, even whole countries can have paradigms. Just ways that are ingrained in terms of how things are supposed to be done, and everyone seems to know that that's how it's supposed to happen until someone comes along and says, this has to change. For example, there are racist systems in our culture and in our country, and calling those out is painful. It takes courage to stand up and say, this has to change. These hiring practices have to change. These policing practices have to change. These community housing practices have to change. These lending practices have to change. When racist motivation is discovered that has enculturated itself into habitual practices that become paradigms in cultures or in systems, it's responsibility of those of us in leadership to call those things out and to say, with courage, these things must change. We've seen in our country how difficult this can be, particularly on the area of race and racism and racial reconciliation and race relations. 
when leaders stand up and say that certain systems have to change, it is almost assuredly going to receive a backlash. And quite frankly, sometimes that backlash is even among and between Christians. It takes courage to change a paradigm. Well, that's four examples. Let me give you a fifth one. It takes courage to uphold moral values. It takes courage to say that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman for life. It takes courage to stand up and say, God made male and female. And when people have gender confusion, they deserve a compassionate and meaningful response from the Christian community, but they also deserve to hear the truth that God made gender and wants us to learn how to live in that binary functioning world. It takes courage to uphold moral values and moral positions especially in a world that we're living in today where the entire culture seems to be committed to undermining these fundamental, basic understandings of moral values. And yet, it's our responsibility to stand up and say and to represent these positions well. Well, number six, it takes courage to risk public vulnerability. This is one that I struggle with maybe more than you might think. Now, I don't have a public life like a politician or a senator or a president or someone like that, but in my circle of influence, I have some public life, some public influence. And quite honestly, risking public vulnerability gets wearisome over time. Being willing to stand up and give an opinion, chart a direction, lay out a course, and especially when that course calls for moderation or compromise or discussion. Those in these, day, in these days, those are some of the hardest positions to hold. Think of an incident recently where someone wanted to know my position, and I said, my position is both sides need to take a step back, sit down, and have a reasonable conversation about finding a way forward. Oh, my goodness. Just even that statement of public uh, accommodation or of public ad- uh, advocacy for a, for a solution to be found earned me a backlash. So it's not just choosing one side or the other. Sometimes it's just any public statement on any kind of issue gets you a reaction from others. Public vulnerability. It requires courage to just stay out there, to keep write, writing a blog, keep making a podcast, keep preaching a sermon, keep doing what you do because you do it in public. And then finally, it takes courage to preach and teach prophetically, to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. You know, there's so much preaching and teaching today that is uh, what I would just call how-to uh, instruction, how to have a better life, how to improve your family, how to do a better job as a parent, how to be a better man, how to be a better woman. Certainly there is some place for that. We all want the gospel to be practical and have uh, legs as it works itself out or walks itself out in our relationships and in our work and in our communities. We all want that. But prophetic preaching goes beyond just how to, to the why of what we do. And the why is because God is sovereign. God deserves glory and worship from his, from his children. And prophetic preaching calls us to account on that holiness of God and the responsibility we have to him. Man, 
It takes courage to preach that way. So what I've said today so far on the podcast is that courage is choosing to obey God, no matter the opposition, the perceived challenges, or the anticipated outcomes. And I I base that definition on this wonderful example of these men in the book of Daniel. But Daniel's a long time ago. What about today? Well, today I've given you seven examples, seven examples of the kind of courageous leadership that's needed for today. The kind of leadership that's required of those of us who are pastors and presidents, who are directors and ministry leaders, who are youth pastors and small group leaders, who are elders and deacons, those of us who've taken on the responsibility of providing leadership in God's kingdom, we need courage in the kinds of ways I've described today. Now, when you demonstrate this kind of courage, you're going to face some opposition. Where does that opposition come from in our world today? Well, it comes from about four different sources. First of all, it comes from satanic and demonic activity in our world. Now, you can read Ephesians chapter 6 or 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and in both those passages of Scripture, you can find a description of satanic and demonic opposition coming against Christians who take a stand for what's right, for what's good, for what's godly. Satan and demonic forces are at work in our world today. And there's no question that some of the rampant evil that we're experiencing today is motivated by these spiritual forces. There is really no explanation for what's happening in Syria, what's happening in the Ukraine. There's really no explanation for the explosion of child pornography and pedophilia in our generation. There is really no explanation for these things apart from satanic and demonic forces motivating this kind of evil to arise among us. Second, our opposition also comes from cultural forces. Uh, By that I mean things like media, social media, blogs, podcasts, and other means of communication. Cultural forces that have a capacity to rise up and bring about remarkable peer pressure and economic pressure on people in leadership. It is possible to move public opinion these days in ways never before imagined, and leaders bear the brunt of this as cultural forces come against them on a regular basis. Third source of opposition are what I'll call political systems. These are more formally organized than cultural forces. These are actual political, governmental systems that do transpire against us as leaders. I have experienced this here in land development processes and in other kinds of legal actions that have been taken against me or that I've had to interface with over the years. Political systems do ally themselves against Christian leaders and call for courage. And then finally, and perhaps most surprisingly, another source of opposition today is within the Christian community, church members and other Christian leaders. We've seen this during the pandemic in some remarkable ways. Christian leaders arguing with each other over masks, attacking each other over vaccines, being openly critical of each other about practices and choices made about worship services and social distancing and how often and where to meet and these kinds of things. Now, I certainly have convictions about all of these issues, and I don't necessarily share the same position that all of my friends have, but 
The point is not that we have differences, but that we've used these differences and weaponized them in such a way that we attack one another. That's what I'm talking about today. And church members, same way. One pastor recently told me that a church member said, if I come back to this church one more time and see you wearing a mask, you'll never see me again. Over a mask? But yet, we see churches being torn apart by things just like this today. So, when you take a courageous stand, you can expect to face some opposition. And where does that opposition come from? Well, some of it certainly has satanic and demonic origins, but it expresses itself in our world through cultural forces, political systems, and even Christian communities. The opposition can come from any number of places and in any number of ways toward us as leaders. But then finally, let's remember that there are levels of opposition and let's, appro- let's respond appropriately to them. The first level of opposition is what I call pressure. This is tolerance and ridicule and attacks on your popularity This is people saying mean things about you or writing mean things about you. Tolerance, ridicule, attacks on your popularity. These are pressure points that people use to try to influence your decision making. But a second level of opposition is what I call harassment. This is when people move to a financial or a legal means to attack you in some way. I've experienced this in the seminary's relocation a few years ago as neighbors attacked us with legal and financial means that they used to thwart our attempts to go forward. That kind of harassment ultimately became personal with us and led to us having to put a security system on our home and take some other steps that I don't even want to disclose here to protect ourselves from uh, attacks that we were receiving from the community, harassment that was coming our way. So pressure is one thing, but harassment's a higher level. The third, though, level of opposition is outright persecution. Now, most of you who are listening to this podcast are in the United States, and I want to assure you that no matter how badly you think the Christian community is being pressured or harassed in the United States, we are not being persecuted. Don't insult yourself or demean yourself or embarrass yourself by claiming as an American Christian that you're being persecuted. Not when there are Christians in the world who really are being persecuted. Persecution means that you're experiencing physical threat, physical attack, loss of life, loss of health, or loss of property because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It might even lead to torture. The sad reality is there are Christians in our world today who are living this way. Let's be careful that we don't overclaim how hard we have it. In the American church, we're facing pressure and occasionally harassment, but we are not yet being persecuted, and let's keep that in view. Well, this is only part one of a two-part podcast on courage in ministry leadership. Today, we've laid out a definition of courage in ministry leadership, looked at seven different areas that call for courage in ministry leadership today, And then in the context of taking those kind of courageous stands, looked at some sources of opposition and some levels of opposition we might face when we take a courageous stand. It's my contention that courage is essential today for ministry leaders. I hope this part of the podcast encourages you and you join me back next week for part two as we continue to look at what it means 
to demonstrate courage in leadership as we lead on.